Amen. Amen. So glad to see so much of you and a couple new faces, which is wonderful. Go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Ephesians. Can everybody hear me okay? And this is this coming out there, the speaker? You don't think so? No? Let's see here. How's that? Any different? Maybe you could you go grab a brother or get it going here? Okay. Is that better? Okay. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Okay, Ephesians 6. We are in Ephesians 6. We've been talking about the armor of God. And before we get started, um, I kind of like to bring a book. I know Emilio does this too. But just like a good old Puritan book on the armor of God, if you're interested, is called The Christian and Complete Armor by William Gurnall. Really wonderful book. Uh, you can uh, learn a lot from that, a lot of insightful and profound material in there. So we've been talking about the armor of God, and we just went through Ephesians six ten through 13, and now we are going in to describe the armor of God in verse uh, 14 and 15 will be uh, what we will try to uh, what we will try to go through today. Can I get a reader to, to read verses 14 and 15 for me nice and loud? Got it, K-Dub? Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the, breast, the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Amen. Amen. So as we've been, as we've been uh, just going through this last chapter and the spiritual warfare, that we are involved in be, uh, because of, by virtue of our union with Christ, uh, we are now involved in a cosmic battle, as we have just seen, as we are continuing to see this unraveling before our eyes about, uh, we were once in a kingdom where we weren't fighting Satan, right? Where he was our father, as Jesus would say, he has a kingdom of his own. He has an army of his own. He has an empire of his own. And he has people under his influence and sway. And because God has uprooted us out of that kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light, uh, we now have a new enemy. Because we love God, Satan is our enemy. Because of this new relationship, the Satan, uh, Satan is and his, and his empire is raging war against God's people. And we see this in many ways. Uh, one of the fiercest ways and attacks that Satan uh, likes to destroy and deceive people is to cause doubt in their minds. And cause doubt, uh, uh, not only to cause doubt about who God is, but the character of God himself uh, John MacArthur says this, Because man's greatest strength is to trust God, Satan's objective is to make him distrust God. And it all started in the garden, as many of us know, where the devil asks, Indeed, has God said? Where he's introducing doubt about the very nature and character of God, the very motives behind the heart of God in creating man, limiting him in the garden, and being a ruler over him. And so when believers begin to doubt the trustworthiness of God and deny what God has written, they begin to sympathize and give credit to the possibility that Satan's right. It, is, is it true that God really doesn't want this for me? And so we must be very careful 
when things begin to go wrong in our lives, seemingly wrong, when the plans of the Lord don't go as planned as the way that we would uh, form our steps, we must begin to, uh, we must begin to examine uh, those circumstances and how they affect our hearts, how those circumstances affect our beliefs about God, because Satan will try his hardest to leverage his influence and sway in those seasons where we are most vulnerable, right? And uh, as we already seen in Job, that Satan does have the ability to influence our minds and our present circumstances if God gives him permission to do that, if God so allows that. Uh, Other ways that Satan can impose attacks on Christians— um, what are some what are some ways that you believe Satan can impose attacks on Christians where you might see him at work or having influence in different spheres? Yes, brother. By his influence. How so? False religion. Amen. Amen. Anything else? Hey, that's right. That's right. Cults. False religions. Influencing all of it. That's right. Yeah. Just in the body in general, uh, with, you know, division, unhealthy division. That's right. Uh, in the body. Right. That's right. That's right. Did you have one? In unbelievers. Oh, how he works. Absolutely. He has that. He the whole world is in the lap or the sway of the evil one, as we see, and uh, we see it in false teaching. Right. Hindering, uh, hindering our ability to serve God, as Paul even said, that he was trying to um, make certain trips, but Satan hindered him, right? And evangelistic trips. And we even see that as we cast the seed, the devil's there to snatch it right back up. And so stealing the word of God and, and our evangelistic efforts, division in the church, self-reliance and pride, uh, right? Worldliness, disobedience to God's word. And so, what's that? Self-righteousness. Amen. And uh, so how do we fight uh, to win and keep from going astray by taking up the full armor of God, right? This is how we will stand firm. And this is where we get into our text, uh, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So in more ancient times, uh, whether one was a Roman soldier or an ordinary citizen, it was common for many to wear either something like a tunic or a robe, right? It was usually cut in a long rectangular shape, right? It was usually kind of like a kind of it was usually kind of like a tube cut in like a rectangular shape and it had you could put it on like this or you could like a tube wise you could put it on like a t-shirt and it was it was very long. Uh, it only had and, and it usually it secured it, uh, this uh, the tunic or the robe was secured to the body by a belt, right? And this design allowed them to be both modest as well as keep somewhat of a cool temperature on a hot day. These were, these were normal clothes uh, back then, to wear a tunic or a robe, something of that, something of that sort. Um, one of the only drawbacks was that it didn't offer a lot of maneuver, uh, maneuverability in regard to one's legs, right? It was very slender, right? Some dresses, uh, women know this more than men, but th- some dresses are very, um, they, they don't widen at the bottom, right? But they go straight down, and you can't run in those things. Uh, they, they, keep your, they keep your range of motion with your legs uh, very limited, and so uh, it was very hard to run. 
very hard to bend down and lift things up, right? Because it would stop your knees from uh, fully expanding, right? To lift heavy things. And it was especially hard to fight, right? This text here says, Gird your, having girded your loins with truth, right? And so since it made this really hard to fight, since it made this, it limited their range of motion, people began to gird their loins. What did it mean to gird your loins? Anybody? Nobody? Huh? What do you got? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's right. It, it, it gave you a better range of motion. Usually they would pick up the, a long part in between their legs. They'd pull it up, and that would hike up their, their pants above their knees, and then they could easily like lift up their knees. They could run. They could do all these things, right? They'd clinch it, and they'd, they'd, they'd tuck it into their belt, and, and, and their belt is the thing that kept them ready. Their belt was the thing that kept them prepared. The belt fastened uh, their uh, their clothes to their body, and it kept the person girded, right? They're, this way their knees were free of hindrances, right? And so we could say what this what this, uh, this kind of an ancient term that we no longer use today, gird your loins, another way of saying that was be prepared, right? Be prepared, be dressed in readiness, right? To be gird your loins is to be prepared for action, and this is really what uh, this is really what Paul is getting at when he gets in this. Speaking of his second coming, Jesus said this. He said to, he said to his disciples in Luke twelve thirty five, "Let your loins be girded or be prepared." In other words, is what he was telling them about that time, about that season. Be prepared, right? And it's likely that it's likely that your NASB probably, if you have an NASB, I'm not sure what the ESV says. But the NSB renders this, be dressed in readiness. The original is, gird your loins, right? But your NSB probably, to give you the, the picture of what he's trying to say, is be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight. And Peter uses the same phrase when he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, right? Then he, then he, he goes on to say, keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to gird up your loins is to be in a sober and focused frame of mind, to be in a position of readiness. Uh, You're prepared for what's coming. And what keeps a man girded? His belt securely fastened to his body. Thus, the belt is a crucial piece of clothing. Yes. I quoted from 1 Peter 1.13. And so the belt is what the belt is a crucial piece of clothing that kept a man or a woman, usually a man, a woman ready for other things, but a man in particular ready for war. And this way, believers are called to gird their loins with truth, right? Be prepared with truth. Truth will prepare and make them ready for spiritual warfare, right? What does truth refer to? What does truth refer to? I'll ask you that. The gospel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say truth refers to, the, to just the content of that which is true. 
It's, it's, it, it, it refers to a whole host of things. And so knowing the truth is essential if you're, going to, uh, if you're going to be at war with the father of lies. And this is our context, knowing what the truth is when you're at war with a liar and someone who wants to defeat you with lies. Knowing the truth is absolutely important. Why is it important to know the truth or true doctrine? Why is it important to know so that you know it's false? The truth sets you free. Amen. Amen. It does inform your faith. Yeah. Amen. 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 Jesse. That's right. That's right. It keeps us prepared. Anybody else? Look at Ephesians four fourteen. And in the middle of that, in the, in the middle of 4.14, we see this. Without sound teaching and knowledge and biblical truth, it says that one will be subject to being tossed here and there, right? Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. This is, what, this is where you are kind of as an, as an infant in the faith. As you are just kind of starting off and you don't know biblical truth, uh, you really are vo- in a vulnerable time period to accept kind of whatever anybody throws at you. And so if you're not grounded in the truth, you have the, the danger of being tossed here and there by waves. It says, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, your cults, right, your false religions. And so if we don't have a rock to stand on, we will be overwhelmed by the waves of deceit and falsehood and attractive half-truths, right? We spot the lie, as Brother Chris said, we spot the lies by knowing the truth. The only way our souls and minds will have security in this world that is perishing is if we have a refuge, which is God's word, to run in, his everlasting and always abiding word. And this is the rock that we must build our house on, as Matthew seven twenty four through 27 says. So not only must we know the truth, right? It's important not only to know the truth, but we also must protect the truth, to defend the truth. As Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, Complicity with error complying with error, accepting error, complicity with error will take from the best of men the power to enter any successful protest against it, right? The more you comply with error and accept error, the less you will fight for truth and take a hard stance for truth, right? This is the error of ecumenicalism, is that The Bible never permits believers to seek unity at the expense of or the neglect of truth. It never allows you to do that, right? Um, You you have this thing where they, where, where maybe a Catholic, Protestant, um, who, who, who knows what else, who, who else, a Methodist church who is accepting um, uh, homosexuality as, 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 as another way of life, not a sin or, you know, something like this, right? You'll hear from them, why can't we just lay our differences aside and just get along, right? You know, we, they always hear this mantra that truth only divides, right? Truth always divides. And so division, I believe, 
uh, when it comes to error, you are to divide. As Jesus said, he did not come to bring peace, right, and error or comfort to peace and sin, but a sword, literally division. He came to bring division and to free us and to divide us from uh, and to cut whatever kind of peace we had in the world and in sin. And so, um, and so we are not to be un- unified around error, but unified against error, right? Unified against error. And if you have anything to say, please just speak up. Um, the floor is open as I just continue to talk, right? So further, not only must we gird our loins with true doctrine, right, which is objective reality that God has placed and revealed to men, but we must also gird our loins with true devotion and commitment to Christ, which is subjective, right? Truth as a virtue, not just truth as we receive it from God, but truth as it is born in us by the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, faithfulness uh, is also synonymous with truth. Your faithfulness Uh, your faithfulness to God, the condition of your hearts, your own personal and inner piety. Psalm 51, 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. In this Hebrew word, emeth, is also used synonymously with faithfulness. God desires us to be walking truthfully, uh, faithfully, honestly, completely committed, and wholeheartedly devoted to him. He desires truth. Truth in the inward parts. That's truth. It's it's also used for faithfulness. Mm-hmm. My question: You don't have to answer this, but is truth in you? God desires truth in the inward being, in the inner man. Is it in you? The same concept is picked up in the New Testament when John, speaking of the genuine character of Gaius says, I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, his truth. That's subjective truth. That's not God's truth, but his truth, right? Truth sounds kind of weird by itself, but to your faithfulness, right? Uh, Love, your love, your joy, your peace, your truth, your faithfulness, uh, and how you are walking in truth. And so putting both of those together, uh, we see that there's there's two elements of truth that I know of. You can probably think of more. But knowing God's saving, transcendental truth, right, it produces the virtue of truth. If you know that saving truth, it will produce the virtue of truth and faithfulness in every single one of us. This is why Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. It produces in you godliness. Knowing the truth produces in you godliness. Thus, so if we are to be at war with Satan's empire, we must be prepared to confront him with truth. And we must do it with an undiminished faithfulness to Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? Questions? In regards to, I think you'll quote from Matthew 10 about Jesus coming to divide in a sense. Right. And not really in a sense. He came to divide truth from error. And in that same context, he speaks about mother and father, uh, people set against you. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways. 
having the truth right. does divide amongst even your family who were close to you who now are distant from you because you keep telling the truth or because you walk in the truth and they don't. Amen. Amen. And I think that that's, some, that's something that we have to die to ourselves, right? We, we naturally don't want division. We want peace. We want ease. Complacency feels so good sometimes. But God says we must put it to death, right? Jesus came to put it to death. He came to divide. He said he was truth, right? Jesus was truth. Look at all the division in his life. What makes you think that you'll be devoid of division if you're walking in the truth? There's going to be, there's going to be division. And so we must gird our loins, as it says, with truth. And next it says, so having girded our loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So in ancient times, the breastplate was one of the most important pieces of our armor. Can anybody tell me why? Huh? Protect your vitals. That's right. What's, that, what's underneath here, right? Your heart, your lungs, your, uh, your, your intestines, everything that is necessary for you to live is underneath there. And so they wanted to protect that. Right, And so in Paul's thought, righteousness is something that we are to put on for protection. It is going to keep you from being wounded at war. And so what is this righteousness that believers are called to put on and are called to exercise in this holy war? Right. So I wanted to explain what it is not. Let me explain what it is not. The breastplate of righteousness is not self-righteousness. It's not your righteousness. As the Bible has made very clear, any kind of righteousness or righteous behavior or deeds apart from relying on God is unacceptable and sinful. Far from making you a threat to the devil, going out to battle in your own strength and by your own fallen resources, it makes you a target for the devil. Uh, The breastplate, another thing that the breastplate is not, the breastplate of righteousness is not the imputed righteousness of Christ. Right. Many comment, some, com- some commentators say it is. Some commentators say it doesn't. I'm of the persuasion that it is not the imputed righteousness of Christ for a couple of reasons. Uh, the imputed righteousness, righteousness of Christ is not something you can continually put on. Right. It's, it's not something you can put on. It's not something that you can leave the house without and be unprepared with. Right. The, the imputed righteousness is something that is eternally yours. It's eternally yours. It's not something that you can exercise during spiritual battle, you know, of putting on this, 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 this uh, righteousness of Christ, uh, though we have it, right? Uh, imputed righteousness is something that God puts on you, not something that you put on yourself. So Paul's not talking about justification. Imputed righteousness grants us acceptance with the Father, but it doesn't grant us acceptance with the devil, it doesn't. He still is going to wage war on you, whether or not you have the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is what he's telling us. We must put on righteousness because Satan is still coming after you. If that's what it meant, then you wouldn't have any struggle. And so it is with God's imputed righteousness that we stand in our Christian life, accepted by God, but not the righteousness by which we fight. Uh, MacArthur says this, God's imputed righteousness is the basis of our Christian life. It's the basis of our Christian living. It protects us from hell, but it does not in itself protect us from Satan in this present life. The breastplate of righteousness that we put on as spiritual armor against, ad, against our adversary is the practical righteousness of a life lived in obedience to God's word. 
make sense. So in other words, possessing God's righteousness necessarily leads to a holy life. And this is our armor against the enemy. And so let me ask you a question. Why is putting on righteousness important for the Christian life? Why is obedience important for the Christian life? In order to appease you if you're living holy. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's where that comes from. That's right. Right, so right. Like, you're no longer accepted. Yeah. That's right. Amen. 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 No, I agree with that. And so it seems to me that Paul believes not our sinfulness, not our unrighteousness, but our righteousness, our spirit-wrought obedience to God serves as protection, right? It serves as protection against the devil's schemes. Therefore, disobedience serves as an opportunity for the devil, right? That's what we see. That's what we see in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 4, 27. Uh, and so if Christians, if Christians neglect their call to be holy and obedient to the commands of the Lord, they will render themselves vulnerable to the attacks of the devil and his emissaries, as well as suffer loss of relational and, exp- and, exp- and experiential pleasures and intimacy and communion with God. A lot is at stake when we disobey God. A lot is at stake, and it's, it's woefully sorrowful for the Christian who displeases God, who sins against God. Brother, did you, I saw your question, your hand. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I think that's a good picture of what Peter is writing. When he bids righteously, he bids right. the opportunity to walk in the same spirit as he was. So, Amen. It's an interesting cross-reference there. Don't want to pay even putting that on. You know, what's your faith and you're walking in. Right, right. Amen. Amen. And I think that's where I think that's where exactly where Paul is drawing this from. Because God put on the breastplate of righteousness. So are we to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Go to Romans 6. And I love this. This, this where, he, where, where Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, charges us um, to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Uh, in Romans 6, verse 11, he talks about our position, where we are eternally accepted before God um, in regards to our condition, right? Our position before God is perfect, it's untouched, it's unblemished, but our condition on earth is sometimes we might feel far from that. Though God sees us in heaven, we're, we're seated at the right hand of God, we're, our life is hidden with Christ and God, Though that might not always seem like a reality, conditionally, in your own life and heart, in your own sinfulness, 
But, but look at this, though. We are, we are told in verse 11 of Romans 6, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but this is how we are supposed to act. The breastplate of righteousness and how this, and how this, uh, how this points to what we are supposed to do. Uh, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you are slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Isn't that glorious? Incredible. It really is. So Satan desires to make you stumble. As 1 Peter 5, 8 says, he's seeking an opportunity to devour you. Those who are not alert, someone who is vulnerable, someone who has chosen to uh, rebel against, be loyal to the king of kings. Therefore, brethren, we are to put on the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, and serve the king who holds the victory. Your disobedience will give you many miseries and will cost you much joy. And I believe the cause of unhappiness in, our, in most Christian lives is usually our own sin. And it was David who was crying out to God in repentance and tears uh, for God to restore the what? To restore the what? The joy. The joy that was lost in his salvation. To restore the joy of salvation because of what his own sin and rebellion had caused. True Christian joy is found in obedience to God. I'm going to skip some of this material here. We'll get through, make sure we get through all of this. So we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Go back to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians 6, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Right? So having girded our loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the believer must also be wearing the appropriate spiritual footwear for the battle. The word shod is the past tense form of shoe, right? Kind of a crazy word. We don't tell our kids, go shod your feet. You know, some of you might. I don't. I, it's, it's crazy. Yes, ma'am. Well, I thought his, his translation, what did you say? I thought it said. He said, put on, yeah, okay, yeah, shoes for your feet, but not necessarily the past like this one is, is getting at. Right, So I can tell K-Dub to put his shoes on, and he will tell me, my feet are already shod right, with sneakers or, or boots. Right, he, he, is, he has already shod his feet. 
And so this is, the, this, is, this, is the, this is what he's telling us to do. It's be prepared that your shoes are wrapped with this. All right? Our shoes are to be wrapped or shod with hetoi masia, which is rendered preparation. Wrapped with preparation. Wrapped with readiness. The same word is used in Titus 3.1, which says that we are to be ready for every good deed. The feet of believers are to be ready and shod with the gospel of peace. Right? What does the gospel mean? Good news? That's right. The good news. And he, he mentions the gospel one, two, three, four, I think four times in Ephesians. And so we are talking about the gospel of peace. The good news of peace. Right? And what does that mean for the present context? And so here's another question. In the context that we're in, what is the object and aim of the present context? What's the aim of this context? Why are we putting on armor? Defense against the, against Satan's attack. That's right, right? Spiritual warfare, right? Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may, may be able to resist, right? There's one objective, to resist in the evil day. Every day is evil. And having done everything... To stand firm. So we are to resist and stand firm, right? So we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. And our enemy is the empire of Satan, as we have already mentioned in verse 12. Our, 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 our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the whole council and empire of Satan, as we just uh, went into the last time we were here. So we are to put on the full armor of God in order to resist and stand firm in the battle. So this reference primarily has to do with spiritual warfare, preparation of the gospel of peace, not proclamation of the gospel of peace to our spiritual enemies. That's who we're waging war against, right? A little further down uh, in this text, Paul does speak uh, he does speak about advancing uh, advancement in the world uh, by the gospel, the seen physical world. But in this context, he is speaking about standing firm by the gospel in the unseen world, right? And in, in the spiritual world of warfare, right? Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, and he turns it all over to uh, to, to the spiritual unseen world of warfare as we are, we're just talking about in verse 12 and then being introduced to what armor should, be, should we be wearing in that spiritual world of warfare, right? Our, our struggle is not flesh and blood, right? The physical, but the spiritual realm. And for this reason, we have to put on the full armor of God, right? That, and this is, this is how we will fight. Therefore, the piece of, this piece of armor, shodding your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, uh, the, this, this, uh, this armor is defensive, and it will help us to accomplish these, object, uh, these objectives, which are to stand firm and resist against the attacks of the enemy. Right? Yes, sir. Right. were saying accused like gail was just saying right right 
Went back to the word. That's right. So how, how do we use this? Our, our feet are to be, are to be prepared um, and to be ready with the gospel of peace. How does the gospel of peace, peace help believers who are in spiritual warfare? We know who wins. How? How do you use it? Not only do you remember it for yourself, mm-hmm. you proclaim it to those who may be doing battle against you. Sure. By Satan. Okay. And God can set them free from it since okay. that is the power of God unto salvation. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Did you have something? Right, right. That's right. Rather than being something we preach to others, it's something we preach to ourselves, right? We are to be ready for this when we have the... Yes, brother, go ahead. Yeah. Also, piggybacking off what you said, yeah. because we have peace with God, he'll fight for us. That's right. That's right. That's right. Man, we're sure going somewhere. This is good. <laughs> so rather, right, rather than, than something we preach to others, this is something we have to preach to ourselves, Right? The gospel of peace declares that we have peace with God. Right? Romans 5 1 says, We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what's going to carry you in the evil day when the adversary accuses you and causes you to doubt God's love towards you. The glorious truth that you've experienced union with Christ. You stand in bold, unshakable assurance and the, in, in the confidence of God's love towards you. Right And his determination, like you just said, to fight for you and to keep you, that he won't let Satan take you and deceive you utterly. Right, You stand in that bold, unshakable confidence that you're at peace with God, no matter what Satan tells you. Isn't that incredible? Right, This is the peace that God has given you in the midst of war. What peace? You can go into war with that peace, right? that you are justified. By God through Jesus Christ. Wow. The gospel of peace furnishes you with the knowledge that God is no longer your enemy, right? As you just said, and you just said, but your defender, that God is for you, that God is backing you. The Lord is on your side. Whom shall you fear? Right? Sister. Every time you say stand, my mind says firm. So. <laughs> stand firm. Stand firm. <laughs> Sorry, that was immature thought going back. Yeah, amen. Did I, did I interrupt you? Were you finished? Stand firm. That's right. Stand firm. And that's, what we're, and that's exactly how we're going to stand firm. By girding our loins with truth, by putting on the breastplate of righteousness and shotting our feet, right? Preparing our feet with the gospel of peace in the midst of war. If Satan, who is the accuser, is going to come after you and ambush you and attack you and throw all manner of assault on top of you, you need to know that God is not against you and he is fighting for you. He is not against you. He is your defender and he will not let you be taken but will keep you. I mean, it's truly incredible. And uh, we'll end a little early. I wanted to end with this. That if the Lord is on your side, whom shall you fear? Turn to Psalm 27 with me. Psalm 
Psalm twenty Psalm twenty seven. This is a Psalm of David who is continually at war. The people of God were continually at war with different nations. They had many enemies, and in the same sense, the people of God are going to have many enemies, not just in the physical world who hate us because they hate Jesus Christ, but in the spiritual unseen world, the world of warfare. And we have to fight this. And so Psalm 27 even applies to us in this war. Right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come, come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And that's exactly what he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go to worship. Went a little early today.